chapter 10, if you would. Romans chapter 10, thank you so much for all the good singing tonight, specials. That's a great blessing. Before the children are dismissed, I want to uh, say tonight is family night. And I know there's some family here. So uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask you who you've invited. Now, if you brought someone who is not your family, but, we're, we're, but you invited them, we're just counting them as adopted family tonight, okay? Just for tonight. That, that way you don't have to live with them forever. But uh, so I want to encourage you to look around and see who has come. If you brought a family member who was here Sunday morning, they're 100 points. If they were not here Sunday morning, they're 500 points. If they've come for the first time, they're 1,000 points. So be looking and seeing who is here upon your invitation. And uh, I want to thank you for the good work you've done. How many of you have invited someone to come to the meeting this week? You've invited someone? All right, now don't, don't give up. And whatever you do, don't get discouraged. The very fact that you're inviting someone to the church house and to hear the gospel shows that you're, you're working for the Lord. And the Lord is pleased with that. And, you know, uh, how many people invited you to a church service today? Is there anybody here that say, somebody invited me to a church service today? Is there anybody here that say, somebody invited me to a church service this last week? How about, is there anybody here that can say, somebody invited me to a church service this last month? Okay, so that would be easy to conclude that this is an unusual thing. So if you're inviting somebody to come to a revival meeting, they may know what that means. They may not know. Uh, They may respond gladly and come. They may not be so interested. But look, you are confronting them with a need that they seldom think about. And that's their need for the Lord. And they need that gentle, godly, compassionate confrontation. And so I want to encourage you to keep it up. Don't get discouraged. Look, I love to hunt. And uh, there are many times that I go out hunting and I don't get anything. But that doesn't keep me from going the next time. Because I made up my mind that's something I'm going to do and I'm going to love to do. And so you just keep on going after the friends and family and neighbors and co-workers. See if you can get them here to hear the word of God. I do want to mention that there is a table right out here in the foyer. If you'd like to uh, look at that, there's some preaching CDs and music CDs and books. And the boys have a section on there where they've made some stuff and they're peddling their wares. So they're there as well. And I hope you'll stop by and, and encourage, uh, encourage them. All the children, fourth grade and down, can be dismissed. All the children, fourth grade and down. And uh, let me ask, if you invited family to raise your hand, if you invited family to raise your hand, if they came for you, keep your hands raised. All right, Brother Mike, glad to have you family. Is this your dad that you brought? Thank you, sir, for coming. We appreciate you being here. God bless you. Romans chapter 10 is where we're at. Romans chapter 10 in the Word of God. Let's bow and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we need you tonight. I pray that you'd give me strength as I preach. And I pray that each one here would have open, tender hearts to the word of God. Fill me with your spirit and help me to preach clearly and plainly so that everyone here understands their need for the gospel and how they can receive it tonight. And I do pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd encourage the hearts of Christians in this message and throughout this night that the power of God would be evident and obvious. And Lord, we'll be careful to thank you and praise you for all that you do because we ask this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. When you were growing up in high school or in college and tests were given, what was your preferred question on a test? What was your preferred question on a test. Now, I'm sure you probably say no question, but we're not going to give you that as an option. So what was your preferred question? Was it fill in the blank, true or false, essay, or multiple choice? 
fill in the blank, true or false, essay, or multiple choice. How many of you would say fill in the blank? Fill in the blank. Anybody? Nobody. Okay. Wow. This is going to be high and dry tonight. True or false? How about true or false? You say, I like true or false. Okay, good. There's a 50% chance you get it and a 50% chance you won't. Uh, how about essay questions? How many of you like essay questions? Nobody liked essay. Wow. Wow. Well, I, I kind of like essay questions because um, I figured if I didn't know the answer, I could just keep writing. And after a while, the teacher would just give up and give me a good grade. But I don't know exactly how effective that was. How many of you say, preacher, I, I would choose multiple choice? Let me see. Multiple choice. Okay, multiple choice gets it. And I want you to see what God says in Romans chapter 10 tonight that I call God's multiple choice for the sinner. God's multiple choice for the sinner. I don't know about you, but I like options. At least with options, I can compare the weight and value and the authenticity and the the truth of each one. So I I like options. But really, in this, there are really only two options that are really available. But God gives us four options on the multiple choice question for the sinner. Now, the greatest problem in this world, the single greatest problem, is not war, it's not poverty. It's not a lack of education. It's not disease. And uh, regardless of what you might have been hearing lately, it's not COVID. The single greatest problem in this world right now is sin. Sin as a whole and sin specifically and sin in your life. That is the world's single greatest problem. Sin that God describes as idolatry in the book of Exodus chapter 20. It's sin that God describes as covetousness wanting what someone else has and longing for it for yourself. Sin that God describes as immorality in the seventh commandment and the breaking of the seventh commandment. Sin that God describes as thievery or stealing in the eighth commandment. Sin that God describes as lying and false witness and accusation in the ninth commandment. Sin that God describes as disobedience to your parents in the fifth commandment or as murder and hatred in the sixth commandment. Sin that God describes as uh, worshiping something other than God in the first and the second commandment, sin that God describes as taking God's name in vain in the third commandment, or sin that God describes as as not honoring uh, the Lord's day, not honoring the Sabbath in the Old Testament and the Lord's day in the New Testament. And God describes that as sin. Now, those are only 10 commandments. But from those 10 commandments proceed the moral law. And the Bible says that you and I have broken not one, but all of them. And we've not just done it once. But we've done it over and over and over again. We've put God before something before God. We've worshipped something other than God and given it uh, or him or her our devotion or our love or our affection. We have, uh, we have taken God's name in vain or we have uh, not, not honored the Sabbath. We've disobeyed our parents. We've hated and killed. We've, we've lusted and we've committed adultery. We have lied and stolen. We have uh, coveted uh, and broken God's law. If we had only done it one time, we would be guilty. So I'm not just saying that the world's problem in general tonight is sin. I'm saying your biggest problem is sin. And that problem is a foreboding problem. It was what was just sung about. It was what we sang about in the first song. It was why it, it, it is what is reflected in our life when we, when we remember that God is holy. That our problem is sin. And it's not a small problem. It is a huge problem. I like to ask people this question. What is your solution for the sin problem? I ask them usually what their background, religious background is. 
And then I'll ask them, what is, what is your solution for the sin problem? Or what is the religion that you uh, worship and the religion that you follow? Uh, what, is, what are the tenets for the solution to the sin problem? And I ask that to them many, many times. What, what is the solution to the sin problem? And I get all kinds of answers. I was in Singapore years ago and playing. Uh, I was down in the bottom part of the, the, the big high-rise apartment with a missionary. And there were about seven or eight Muslim boys and they were playing ping pong. And uh, I started talking to them and they could speak English. And I said, I'll tell you what. I said, I'd like to play with you. I said, and if I play with you and win, then I want you to listen to me. I've got something very important I want to say. Well, they didn't really suspect that I, I could win, but I beat the socks off them. It was a great feeling of satisfaction. And I got an opportunity to witness to them and give them the gospel. And I asked them as Muslims, what is their solution to the sin problem? They said, well, you know, the five pillars. You pray five times a day towards Mecca. You, you uh, fast during Ramadan. You, uh, you do good deeds and show charity. You, uh, you make a holy pilgrimage, and depending on what Muslim you talk to, you wage holy war. And so I asked them, I said, after you've done all... All of that, I said, does that absolutely guarantee that you're going to heaven and not hell when you die? No, no. I was witnessing to a Muslim man on the way from, from uh, Minneapolis to Bozeman some years ago, and I was on the plane with him, and I asked him what the solution to the sin problem was in the Muslim faith, and he told me basically the same. I said, well, when you've done all that, do you know for sure that your sins are forgiven and that your home is heaven? No. I've talked to Catholics and Lutherans and Mormons. I've spoken to Jehovah's Witnesses and I've spoken to atheists and I've asked them what their solution to the sin problem is. I was speaking to a lady uh, just a few, really just a few weeks ago down in Dillon and, and uh, she said she was taken up with the Eastern religions and she had just lost her husband to suicide. He had a, he had a, a ulcerative colitis and he just couldn't stand it anymore and he took his life. And, and uh, I said, well, I, said, uh, I want you to know that Jesus Christ has a solution, and he wants to comfort you, and he wants to save you and solve your sin problem. She said, well, I'm kind of into the Eastern religions, and I believe them strongly. She said, I used to be Baptist and go to church camp and all that. And I listened to her for a little while, and I said, ma'am, I said, you are suffering right now. And I said, you will continue to suffer. I said, and when you found the Eastern religions have emptiness and only emptiness as their answer, I said, Jesus will be right there. Why? Because Jesus is the answer to the sin problem and faith in him and believing that he died and rose again is the answer. Now let's look at Romans chapter 10 and see what God has to say as far as our options are concerned in this matter of the sin problem. Romans chapter 10 and verse number 1. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I, have, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now, let me just encourage you. Whenever you read the Bible, you should read with a pen in hand or a pen nearby or a highlighter or some way to mark it. And whenever a verse is mentioned or a word is mentioned over and over or a phrase, you should highlight that phrase and you should mark it because God's trying to get something to you. He says three times in just a few verses the word righteousness. In verse number three, he says they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. What's the Bible saying? The Bible is saying your greatest problem is your sin problem. And you won't get to heaven until you get your sin solved and righteousness that is sufficiently satisfactory to God in its place. I want to ask, has that happened in your life? 
Has there been a point in time when you have transferred your sin for Christ's righteousness? When you have received the gift of eternal life, do you know that you know that you know if you die today that you'd go to heaven? If not, God Almighty brought you to this building tonight so that you could hear the message of salvation and be born again. And the Bible says here in Romans chapter 10 and verse number 3 about the Israelites that we have the first option in dealing with our sin. You say, preacher, what is that option? All right. The question is, how can I deal with my sin so that when I die, I'm ready to meet the Lord? And the options are letter A. First of all, you can follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Notice it again. Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Hey, Christian, that ought to be your heart desire. Your heart desire for your family and for your co-workers and for your friends and for your neighbors ought to be that they might be saved. More than anything else, you ought to have that as your heart's desire. You probably have a heart's desire to get together with them on special days and their birthdays and get them something nice for Christmas and whatever the case may be. But you, you ought to, above everything else, have as your heart's desire desire that they would be saved and then you ought to expand it not just with your family and your friends and your co-workers but you ought to expand it to the people here in this valley and say my heart's desire and prayer to God for the people in this valley is that they would be saved and the people in my town is that they would be saved that was Paul's all-consuming desire why he longed for his brethren Israel to be saved he said I bear them record that they have a zeal of God but not according to knowledge in other words they were zealous for something that was not the truth. Now, zeal does not equal accuracy, right? Uh, we've seen that even now. Uh, years ago, uh, my dad told me a story of a football game that he was in and somebody was playing and he grabbed the ball or somebody grabbed the ball and they took off running towards the end zone. And then all of a sudden they realized, uh, the person running, that everybody on the team was shouting and saying, stop, 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 you're going the wrong way. And he was running towards the opponent's end zone. Uh, not exactly what you want to see happen in your football game. Though a lot of zeal, but there's not, there's not, a, lot of not, not a lot of knowledge. There's zeal, but it's not headed in the right direction. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Uh, by the way, sincerity does not equal accuracy. Someone says, well, my family believed this and my dad and my granddad and my great granddad. Look here, I'm, I'm, I'm in all due respect for your family and your granddad and your great granddad. But sincerity does not equal accuracy. You can sincerely believe a thing. You can zealously believe a thing. And it can be the absolute wrong thing. And you best not be wrong when it comes to this matter of your eternal destiny, of heaven and hell, of getting your sin solved so that righteousness can be placed in its place. If you want, option number one is follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Look at it again. He says they've been ignorant, verse 3, of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. In other words, they have their own set of righteousness. And it may make them look good. Let me ask you a question. I'm, I'm not saying this in a derogatory sense. I'm saying this in a simply, purely objective observation sense. If I become a Mormon, and the whole town of Whitehall becomes Mormon, will that make, on the outside, look, make us look like we've got it together? It may. Mormons are very organized people. Mormons are very hardworking people. Mormons are very patriotic people. Uh, but just because I've got a bunch of people around me that are doing the same thing and, and uh, we've all agreed on a certain standard of citizenship doesn't mean we're headed in the right direction. 
I can follow a pattern or a code of conduct from the Mormon religion or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Catholics or the Lutherans or, or the, uh, anybody. You just name them and it will make me look good in that society. It may make me even be more accepted in a society where that's the general rule and that's the general culture. But that doesn't mean it's right. They being ignorant of God's righteousness, the Jewish people. And Paul, if anybody could speak about the Jewish people, Paul could. Paul was like a Jew, a SEAL Team 6 Jew. I mean, he was like a Jew on steroids. He knew exactly what was required of him as a Jew and as a Pharisee and as someone who followed and kept the law. He said, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church, touching the righteousness which was in the law. I was blameless. Uh, he said, he said uh, I was, uh, I was uh, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law blameless. Concerning zeal, persecuted the church. But he said, those things which were counted righteousness for me, he said, I counted them as dung. We're all on the same page as to what that is. A lot of cow pies around here. We know what that is. He says, that's what I counted my righteousness as. So that I could win Christ and, not be, found, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of faith. So here they have a standard of righteousness, but they're ignorant of God's righteousness. In other words, these dear Jewish people are following a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. And I want to say something. It is completely ridiculous. You used to preach your house so. Well, let me illustrate it this way. Let's say I wanted to play for the, I don't know what team everybody in Montana cheers for. Probably the Minnesota Twins. Anyway, so, uh, so, uh, so I want to play for the Minnesota Twins. So I said, I'm going to go for the Minnesota Twins. And I'm going to start doing push-ups. And I'm going to start running. And I'm going to start working out. And I'm going to become a Minnesota Twin. Even though I'm 47. And even though I'm, I'm coming close to uh, the other side, I'm going to go for it. So I'm going to go for it. And I passed Tim Tebow up. And I get on to the minor leagues and I get into the Minnesota Twins and I get my fancy blue hat with my Minnesota Twin logo and I get my uniform and I'm ready for my very first at bat. And my first at bat comes and we're playing, uh, we're playing a, another team where I'm ready to go and I get my first at bat and I'm all set. Here comes the pitch. It's a 90 mile an hour fastball. And instead of stepping into it and swinging and hitting it and making contact, getting it out of the, uh, the, out of the infield and out of the outfield, I drop my bat and catch it with my bare hands. And then instead of throwing it to the pitcher or hitting it out into the infield or the outfield, I turn and throw it behind the catcher into the stands. And then instead of running from home plate to first base, I run from home plate to second base, knock the pitcher down in the process, slide head first into home or second base, get up and dust myself off. And I look at the umpire and the second baseman and say, bet you've never seen that before. <laughs> now what are they going to do? The coach is going to call a timeout. He's going to come out to the field. He's going to talk to me and probably use some colorful language. And he's going to tell me there's no reason that I should be playing. This is my first at bat. And what in the world am I thinking? And I'm there on the second base defending myself. Did you see that? I mean, they didn't catch me. And they didn't tag me. And I beat them by a country mile. And finally, the coach says, get him out of my sight. And they take me down into the uh, the dugout and then down further into the clubhouse and all the while I'm bragging I caught a 90 mile an hour fastball nobody in the history of baseball has ever done that and whoo it stings but boy am I proud of myself and they get me down into the clubhouse they say what's the matter with you I said what do you mean what's the matter with me you say that's not the way you play baseball and with a look of indignation I look at them and I say it is where I come from now, at that moment, they're going to know I'm crazy. <laughs> Maybe call the men in white jackets to haul me off. But are you listening to me? 
I don't mean disrespect, but I want to say this as plainly as I can so nobody here misunderstands. There's not a difference between that and organized religion that doesn't have the Bible as the only foundation and Jesus as the only Savior. Not a bit of difference. It is completely ridiculous. Not a woman in this place, not a woman in this place would search on Amazon and look and shop for a product that would say on the back, you've got 15 things you got to do in order to make this product work and even then it might not work. You, you'd pass over that thing in a skinny minute. Not a man in this place would buy a chainsaw or any other tool for that matter that on the box it says you've got to do 16 things in order to make this work and even then it might not work. And yet that's what religion does again and again and again. And how people can be blinded and follow this first option so blindly and so willingly and plunge themselves straight into the abyss and an eternal hell is beyond me because it's completely ridiculous. He said, well, do this and do that and do that. I was in the Vatican a few years ago while I was visiting Italy and a missionary there. And we were in Sistine, the Sistine Chapel. And there was a lot of people. And the, and the Sistine Chapel, is, it's, a, it's a little bit wider than this building right here. Definitely probably about two or three times taller. And, and, uh, and, and probably about maybe two times long, as, as long as this. And, and beautiful fresco paintings on the ceiling by Michelangelo. It was packed and a bunch of people were there and there was a, a, a police officer that would stand up and he would say, Attenzione, silence please. And then there was a, a, a monk or a, a priest and he came and he said, let's pray. And he, so he prayed and I went over to him because he said, anybody that wants to talk to me, I'd, I'd like to meet you right here at the front. And I said, I want to talk to him. So I met him right here at the front and I said, sir, what do I need to do to get to heaven? He said, well, you've got to believe. I said, anything else? He said, we've got to, you know, do good, keep the commandments. I said, anything else? And he gave me a list of about, oh, eight things. And uh, then he realized other people were waiting. He said, listen, you've got a lot of good questions. He said, I'm going to talk to these people, and then we'll go. And the platform was real long. It was probably about mm, 30 feet long. And he said, we'll go there, and we'll sit and talk. So he talked to a few people. And we left after that, and we went all the way to the back of the platform, and we sat down on two chairs right here. And I began to ask him questions and quote Scripture. I said, well, you said the Bible, you said that I, I've got to believe, and I've got to do good, and I've got to keep the law. I said, how is that possible when the Bible says by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh living be justified? You see, it's all this list of everything I got to do. And at the end, there's not even a guarantee that I'm going to go to heaven. Why? Because there's no guarantee in that. The first option is follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. The second option, would you draw your attention to what the Bible says in Romans 10 and verse 4? It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Remember that word in verse and we'll come back to it. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law. That the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Now remember that. Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law. That the man that doeth those things shall live by them. All right, option number two. Are you ready? First option, follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Second option, keep the law perfectly. From the moment you're born to the moment you die. And if you do that, you can go to heaven. He said, preacher, I don't think we believe that around here. Well, you believe the Bible, don't you? Well, yes. We'll turn back to Romans chapter 2 then and see how this is bolstered. Look at what the Bible says in Romans chapter 2. Romans is the book that I send people who are genuinely seeking God. And I encourage them to read it. And I encourage them especially to read Romans 1 through 5. 
Romans 1 says all the, those that are not Jews are guilty sinners. That is, all Gentiles are guilty sinners. Romans 2 says all those that are not Gentiles are guilty sinners. All those that are Jews are guilty sinners. Romans 3, in case we missed anybody, everybody's a guilty sinner. Romans chapter 4 makes a clear, hard, cold case that says it's not works, it's grace. It's not, if it's grace, it's not works. If it's works, it's not grace. It can't be a mixture of the two. And that it's absolutely not works that save us and wash our sins away. Romans chapter 5 declares there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And we have salvation through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a wonderful passage. Romans 6, 7, and 8 describe victory truth for Christians. Romans 9, 10, and 11, as we mentioned the other day, describe the, the way God is dealing with the Jews. And then Romans 12 through 16 describe practical Christian living for the Jews. But right here in Romans chapter 2, while he's indicting the Jews, he's already indicted the Gentiles, they're guilty sinners. Romans 2, he says in verse 6, speaking of our God, who will render to every man according to his deeds... To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Read that again. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. That means he's saying if you want eternal life, then through patient continuance, you need to seek for glory and honor and immortality. Notice verse number 10. But glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there's no respect of persons with God. God's an equal opportunity God. Any man, woman, boy, or girl, regardless of whether he or she is Gentile or Jew, if they will keep the law perfectly from the moment they're born to the moment they die, they'll be able to walk on streets of gold and they'll be able to get to heaven. That's what the Bible's saying. But you say, preacher, you've got to keep it perfectly right. You say, well, I haven't done that right. Well, neither has any man right, except the God-man, Jesus. Well, you say the second option, keep the law perfectly from birth till death, is completely impossible. Right. The first option is completely ridiculous. Follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. It may make you look righteous. It may make you feel righteous. It may make you seem righteous to others, but it's going to send you straight to hell. The second option, keep the law perfectly from birth till death. Who's done that? He says in James, whosoever shall offend in one point, he is guilty of all. That means if you break God's law one time, let's just pretend. Like, Like maybe you want to play pretend. Let's just pretend that you've only broken one law. Well, you're a lawbreaker. That law broken will keep you out of heaven and will send you straight to hell. Why? Because God is holy, holy, holy. And he's not going to let sin into heaven. He wouldn't be God if he did. And heaven wouldn't be heaven if he did. You're you're not going to get to heaven if you have one sin. I I heard of a story of a 70 or 80 year old lady and she... She had been witnessed to by the preacher and by the preacher's wife and by people in the church. And she just would not admit that she was a sinner. Well, they just kept loving her, pointing her to the scripture, talking to her, reaching out to her. And one day she admitted that when she was seven, she told a lie. Boom. That one lie will keep you out of heaven and send you straight to hell. Whosoever shall offend in one point, he's guilty of all. And because she admitted that she had told a lie, that was grounds for them to influence her and point her to Jesus. And she trusted Christ as her Savior. Look here, you can't get to heaven if you've told one lie. You can't get to heaven if you've stolen one thing. 
You can't get to heaven if you've cussed one time. You can't get to heaven if you've hated at one point. You can't get to heaven if there's ever been a seed of lust in your heart. Why? Because sin will keep you from heaven. That's why sin is your greatest problem. It's more, more important than your physical problems, more important than your financial problems, more important than your, your emotional problems, more important than your family problems. Is your sin, and it will bar you from heaven. That's why we have this church. That's why this church was started. That's why I travel in a fifth wheel and drag my family across the country in a different place every week for about 30, 40 weeks a year. Because sin is man's greatest problem. The only one that can solve it is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see it? Watch. If you want, you can follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Or you can keep the law perfectly from birth till death. And if you started right now to keep the law and you kept it perfectly till you died, you've already got however many years you've lived and broken God's law. Let me explain it this way. Let's say you were over at your friend's house and uh, your friend's mom decided to step out to get some milk at the corner grocery store. And she said, shortly, now, now don't do any roughhousing or carrying on while I'm gone. So she locks the door and she driveway. As soon as you hear the car pull out of the driveway and the motor is out of sight and out of earshot, all of a sudden ball, a ball starts getting tossed around. And, and it's not just tossed around in, in the outside, it's being tossed around in the living room where the, the fancy stuff is. And uh, your friend throws you the ball and you throw it back to him, he throws it harder back at you. So you've got to throw it harder back at him. And then pretty soon he throws it so hard it misses your grasp and it hits the vase sitting right on the wall. In fact, it's such a fancy vase, it's not even called a vase. It's called a vase. <laughs> and you can't get to it in time to save it, and it breaks into a hundred pieces. And your friend stands there looking, and you stand there looking, and you both agree, this is our last day on the planet. We're going to die. And so you go find a couple tubes of, of crazy glue, and you get the crazy glue, and you try to put it all together, and, and, and it's just coming together seamlessly. And, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, as you put the last piece in and turn the vase so that the cracks are facing the wall, you hear the door, and your mom comes in. And everything's right and fine, Right? The value of that vase is perfect, right? No, that vase has lost its value and you can put it all back together. Look here, you could spend the rest of your life fixing the wrongs that you've already committed against God and his word and others and it still would not be enough to satisfy the demands of a holy God. You said, preacher, what's option three? Well, I'm glad you asked. Please at Romans chapter number two. Right in the middle of this passage, verses 6 through 11, there are a couple verses that are stunning. Verse 8, but unto them, he says in verse 7, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. So this presents to us option number three for dealing with our sin. First, I can follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. That's completely ridiculous. Second, I can uh, keep the law perfectly from birth till death. That's completely impossible. Third, I can die, go to hell, burn forever, and pray, pay for my own sin. Let me repeat that. My third option is die, go to hell, burn forever, and pay for my own sin. Remember how I said at the beginning there are really only two options that are viable? This is one of those two. Die, go to hell, 
burn forever, and pay for my own sin. Now listen carefully. God did not make hell with you in mind. He prepared it for the devil and his angels. But because God is holy, as I've already said, he will not let sin into heaven. He would not be God and heaven would not be heaven if he did. Because God is holy, your sin must be dealt with. And so either you pay for your sin or you let someone else. Here, he says to them who are contentious and obey not the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Indignation and wrath. From who? From God. Verse 9. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil. Of the Jew first and also of the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons. Verse 11. With God. God's an equal opportunity God. You break the law, you pay the price. And if you want to pay the price, the only way you can pay the price is die Go to hell, burn forever, and pay for your own sin. On another trip that we had to uh, Italy, we were there. It was our first trip, 2010. It was my wife and me and Andrew when he was just a baby. And uh, there was a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday meeting. And it was a wonderful meeting. Many people were saved. It was really stunning because I just didn't expect that. I, I went in a little faithless, to be honest. But there was a lady that was saved. Her name was Santina. She was in her 80s. She came Friday night. Saturday night and Sunday morning was invited by her, her housekeeper. And so she came and she came every service and afterwards there'd be a fellowship and, and we would get a chance to, to mix and mingle and talk and get to know each other. After the Sunday service, just about everybody was gone and Pastor Frank Maeda said, hey, Brother White, come over here. I want you to meet Santina. So I sat down and he introduced us. And very quickly after she had been introduced to me, she looked across the table and she said, I'm not changing my religion She said, I've been this way ever since I was a little girl, and I'm not changing now. She said, I just paid $1,200 to $1,500 to buy a bunch of Catholic literature to pass out, and I'm not changing my religion. I said, well, ma'am, I'm not really here to talk about that. But I would like to ask you this question. Who pays for your sin? She thought for a moment. She said, well, I, I suppose I do. I said, how? She said, well, I pray the rosary and I go to confession and I pray to the saints and I pray to Mary. And I, she listed about 10, 12 things that show she was a very devout Catholic, not just a C&E Catholic, Christmas and Easter. <laughs> I know what a C&E Catholic is because I know C&E Baptist pretty well. Anyway, um, she was very, very devout. And, and, and I said, well, I said, after you've done all of those things, are you absolutely certain that your sins are forgiven and when you die, you're going to heaven? She sighed and hung her head and said, no. And I took that as an open door, an invitation. I began to preach the gospel to her with Frank Maeda translating in every form or fashion that I could, in every illustration that I could, every scripture that I could, I gave to her. She said to me in the course of conversation, she said, oh, pray for my son. He thinks I'm crazy with all this religion. Just, just pray for my son. And then after a while, I'm still witnessing to her and giving her the gospel. She stands because it's been sitting for a while and, and she just needs to stretch. And so out of respect, I stand for her. And, and she says it again. Oh, pray for my son. He thinks I'm crazy with all this religion. And I had had enough. Bro- Brother Patser, sometimes you just have enough. And evangelists have enough is way less of a tolerance level than pastors have enough. And I looked at her and I said, you want me to pray for your son? And you're going to tell him he has to pray the rosary and go to confession and do all this dozen things. And at the end, he can't even know for sure that he's going to heaven when, she di- when he dies? And she said, oh, mamma mia. <laughs> she knew I had her. 
Santina that day bowed her head and trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. And she was a radically transformed Christian as a result of the gospel. She went from religion to real righteousness. She went from religious and on her way to hell to saved and on her way to heaven. Why? Because she decided she wasn't going to follow this third option. And I told her plainly, I said, if you want to pay for your own sin, the only way you can pay it, regardless of what you've been taught all your life, is die, go to hell, burn forever, and pay for your own sin. Wouldn't that be a shock? Wouldn't that be a shock to someone here tonight who's all your life tried to be an upstanding citizen and a decent dad, a godly or a decent wife and a godly uh, child and you tried to follow the rules pretty much and you tried to pay for your own sin based upon the religion that you followed and you get to hell step one second into eternity and the angel says actually none of that is what pays for your sin this is what pays for your sin what tragedy you said preacher there's four options yes turn back to Romans chapter 10 would you and we'll be through Romans chapter 10, verse number 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Hear it. To everyone that believeth. The Bible says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that worketh. No. You know why I know the Bible is God's book and not man's book? Because at the end of verse number four, it would have said Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that's baptized, to everyone that tries, to everyone that gives, to everyone that works. No, he said Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. What is the currency that God accepts so that you can get righteousness satisfactory to get you into heaven? Belief. Not just a belief in your belief, but a faith in Jesus Christ. There is an object of your faith. And you place your faith in Jesus and choose not to believe in anything else. You turn from your unbelief and trust in Jesus. And you believe in Him. Verse number 5. He says, for Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law. That that he says, the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. He says, who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or, who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that that is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou, that's you, put your name in there. That if thou, Dave, John, Bill, Sue, put your name in there. Verse number nine. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him should not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's the Bible saying? He's saying that option number four is believe on Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again. You preacher, am I supposed to believe in Jesus or that he died and rose again? Yes. You believe in a fact about Jesus, 
that he died and rose again and the person of Jesus. You're not trusting in Whitehall Baptist Church. You trust in Whitehall Baptist Church, you'll die and go to hell. You're not trusting in this preacher or Pastor Gilstrap. You do that, you'll die and go to hell. You're not trusting in your own ability to see things rightly. You're trusting in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Only the one that has nail prints in his hand, who died, was buried and rose again, has the ability and the authority to save you. No one else does. And if they say they do, they're a fake and a fraud and they're, they're going to lead you astray. But here he says, say not within thy heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. You know what he's saying? This is what he's saying. Don't stop asking silly questions. That's what he's saying. Stop asking silly questions. Uh, I was preaching in South Carolina several years ago in Landrum, South Carolina, and the pastor and the assistant pastor who happened to be my father-in-law, and I went and visited a man named Harold Roper. And Harold Roper was in Vietnam. He just about got his legs blown off in Vietnam. He had a godly mom that reached out to him and, and uh, tried to point him to Jesus. In fact, she was such a, a stalwart Christian that she met him on the plane or at the airport after he got back from Vietnam and said, now are you going to turn your life over to Jesus? <laughs> and, and she was just that way. And, uh, and, and he had lived his life for himself, but he'd never been saved. He worked at the deaf and blind school of Spartanburg, South Carolina in the security shack. And we went over and we began to plead with him. We begin to give him the gospel. I remember it well, the pastor, how, how powerful and how passionate he was weeping, pleading with, with Harold to get saved. Harold said, ah, it's just so hard. It's so difficult to believe. And I said, Harold, no, it's not. And I quoted verse 8. The, the, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth, the word of faith which we preach. It's not hard to believe. It's simple to believe. And sometime after that, Harold, Harold right there in the security shack there at the deaf and blind school of Spartanburg got down on his knees and he realized how simple it was because he called upon the name of Jesus. It's not complicated to believe on Jesus. It's not difficult to believe on Jesus. It's so simple a child can. It's so simple someone who's been steeped in religion all their life and they're looking for some kind of satisfaction and they've not found it in religion. They can. It's so simple a murderer can. It's so simple a drug addict can. It's so simple that somebody addicted to sex can. It's so simple... Anybody can. If you'll believe on Jesus, he'll save you. Some years ago, I was preaching in, in San Leandro, California. I went down uh, from my room to the breakfast nook, and this particular, this particular uh, hotel had a good continental breakfast. Uh, that's not always the case. The two most disappointing words in the English language are continental breakfast. But anyway, uh, 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 this one seemed to have a good one. So I went down and had some, some breakfast and some yogurt and a donut or something. I went back up, and as I approached my room... Uh, I noticed that the door was ajar. And I said, I didn't leave the door open. And it wasn't stopped by the deadbolt, you know, like you do sometimes when you leave a, a hotel room. And, and there was a maid card out. I said, this is strange. And I opened the door a little bit, and I looked inside, and I noticed there was a plate with a bagel and toast on the, on the credenza. I said, I, I didn't leave any food in there. Somebody's in my room. And I walked in a little further, and there was a man seated on the bed. And I, then I realized, I'm in the wrong room. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm getting out of here. Now, in, in all fairness, it was 207 instead of 307. Everything looked the same. And so, boy, I said, i, I got to get out of here. What in the world am I thinking? And so I snuck out of the room and bolted down the hallway and darted up the stairs. And, and this guy followed me. His name was Tony. And I thought, oh, man. And I said, I'm really sorry. He said, oh, no problem, no problem at all. We just got to talk, and I found out that he was there fishing in San Leandro. He was up from Bakersfield, California, and he was really lonely and, and, and going through it. He'd had his wife die when she was in her 30s of cancer, left him with two little girls, 
and one girl was married, and now somebody had just asked the other girl to get married, and, and uh, now he's, he's thinking about what, what life's going to be from here on out. We just got to talking in a friendly conversation. I asked him early on if he knew the Lord, and he seemed to indicate he had some knowledge of that. He told me the details of his wife dying of cancer. He said, I was into God, and I was following God before that. He said, and then after, then he said, after she died, I really wanted her to get healed, and after she died, he said, I, I took a nosedive. He said, sometime later, I'd marry a, a lady, and she had a four- or five-year-old boy. And He said, about four years into that, she divorced me. He said, can you tell me why that happened? I said, Tony, come over here. And we went over and sat in a little sitting area in that floor. I said, you know, I had a sister who was 44 years of age when she died of cancer. She had 11 children, nine were still at home. I said, can you tell me why that happened? I said, I had a cousin. Her name was Julie. And, and her husband, Jim, Julie was 48 and Jim was 53. And they had three kids, Brittany, Caleb, and Alyssa. Brittany, Alyssa, and Caleb. And I said, Jim and Julie and Caleb and Alyssa were coming back from a, a Caleb's basketball game in South Dakota. They were just outside of Sioux Falls where they lived when they veered this far to the left from the left lane, hit a guardrail, launched their Ford Sport Track down into a ravine. They all died on impact except my cousin. She died in the life flight to the hospital. I said, do you know why that happened? I said, I don't. And I said, I, I hope that something good comes of it. Brittany was the only surviving family member and the president of the college had to pull her out of a place she was watching and let her know she just lost all her family. I said, I don't know why that happened. I said, but I said, if you could have someone come along and give you the stellar answer to why your wife died when she was in her 30s and left you to raise those two precious girls, I said, would it all of a sudden make sense? And you'd say, oh, wow, that takes all the pain away. I said, probably not. I said, Tony, these questions are certainly okay to ask, and the Lord never faults you for asking them. I said, but the most important question you need to ask is, have you let Jesus be your substitute, and have you trusted in his shed blood to wash away your sin? And he said, no. I said, Tony, right here and right now is when you ought to choose that fourth option. And he did. And, you know, I would venture a guess that right here, right now, someone in this place needs to choose that fourth option. The first is completely ridiculous. Follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. The second is completely impossible. Uh, keep the law perfectly from birth till death. The third is completely unnecessary to die, go to hell, burn forever, and pay for your own sin because Jesus already paid for your own sin when he died on the cross. And if you'll believe on him today and accept his free gift of eternal life right here, right now, forever, your sin debt will be washed away and he'll give you the righteousness you need to get into heaven. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to thank you for your